Very good morning to everybody. How's everybody doing? Good. All right. We've got some ground to cover today, as you can tell. Uh, we're going to be closing out the Solomon story in Kings, so we can move on to some of the other characters in the next few weeks. Now, last week, if you were here, the message about King Solomon was very encouraging, right? He started clinging to God. He got new wisdom. And so Israel became a very good place to be for everybody, right? For everybody, not just the people at the top. In other words, the world was becoming a better place. That's the point from last week's text. That's what happens when God gets involved. That's what the Bible talks to us about. And quite frankly, if you haven't heard it, you can talk to people in this room. They'll tell you the same thing, those who've been walking with God for a while. This week, alas, the good times stop rolling. Something's rotten in the land of Israel. And so things become cattywampus, as we say in my homeland, South Carolina. In other words, the kingdom starts crumbling and things begin to rip apart, and we're going to see more about that next week. But we're going to begin to explore the root causes of all of this today, and we're going to do that along three lines. First of all, we're going to talk about what happened. Second, we're going to talk about how it happened. And third, we're going to talk about God's response to it all. So on we go. What happened? How do we know things are rotten in the land of Israel, and especially with King Solomon? Well, there are three snapshots that tell us about this. Number one is the problem of houses. Number two, the problem of women. And number three, the problem of gold and horses. By the time we get to chapter 11, the stench is overwhelming. So prepare to hold your noses. The problem of houses. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 38 to 7, 1. Kate just read this for us. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house of God was finished in all of its parts. And according to its specification, Solomon was seven years in building God's house, but for his own house, he was 13 years. These verses just tell us that Solomon spent twice as long building his house as he did God's temple. That is not an innocent detail. You build what you love. The writers of 1 Kings want us to see something about Solomon's priorities. They're getting out of order. Right? Now, at this particular moment in ancient Israelite history, the building of the temple, getting it done, was incredibly important, terribly important. Why? Because once that temple was operational, the people would be much less likely to go to these high places to worship God. This is a picture of a high place I visited in Israel a few years ago in the northerly parts. Right? What's the problem with high places? They're altars on top of mountains, kind of decentralized. Well, in the Old Testament, God doesn't like His people to go up there because you never really know who's being worshipped up there. Maybe God, maybe somebody else. This is a chronic spiritual problem in the Old Testament. The high places, in short, are places of spiritual infidelity. So in a practical way, the temple is a major part of solving that problem. Right? That's what chapter 3, verse 3 tells us. The people were sacrificing at the high places because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. That's why they were up there. Imagine a town populated by people who have an awful foot fungus. Okay? It's wrecking the community, right? No one can stand on their feet and walk, so people can't go to work. They can't contribute to the social life of the town, right? The mayor needs to find a remedy. Right? He needs to build a massive podiatry clinic right? that can treat all of that fungus. And until he does that, the whole village is going to be crippled. Now imagine that that mayor also had in mind to build himself a large and stately mansion. And he decided to devote the lion's share of his energy and resources to that house. He would not be a great mayor. 
His priorities are off, right? He's creating more problems. That's what's going on with Solomon. If the king is really committed to God, the temple should be his top priority, but it's not. Chapter 6 and 7 are an expose about this. See, besides the fact that Solomon's house took twice as long to build as the Lord's temple, we learn a few other things. Number one, it was much larger than the temple of God. You can actually read the dimensions in these chapters. Number two, Solomon actually delays the construction of the temple. He halts it so that he can get onto the work of his own house. That's what you read about in chapter 7. And then lastly, we read that, that Solomon's palace, his house, is much grander than the temple, right? It's a plush pleasure palace. There's no linoleum or vinyl siding on this building, right? This guy knows the definition of luxury. Now, chapter 6 tells the temple was pretty nice, too. It had a lot of cedar from Lebanon in it, right? They didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't go cheap on the temple. But chapter 10 tells us that Solomon's house didn't just have some cedar from Lebanon. It was actually known as the palace of the forest of Lebanon. That's strong language. It was encrusted with precious stones. This is a Trump Tower. That's what it is. This hardly needs interpreting, right? What we do tells a lot about what we love and value. We know this. Okay, let's move on. The problem of women. Some of you are probably thinking I'm going to say something that's offensive. Don't worry, I'm not. Just hold your, hold your horses. Solomon was a lover. To be sure, he loved God, but he loved other things too. You know, Dolly Parton, she's back from where I'm from, she once said this, God and I have a great relationship, but we both see other people. Right? She could have been talking about King Solomon. Now, the problem of women has nothing to do with their being women. That's not the problem. The problem is what they represent, and especially with the religious beliefs that they import into Israel. Early on in 1 Kings, we get a sense that this is going to be a problem. Look at chapter 3 again. It says this, right at the beginning, early in Solomon's life, Solomon made a marriage with the Pharaoh in Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to his city. Right? Solomon marries an Egyptian princess to make an alliance. We know this is how kings work, right? What the H-E double hockey sticks. If you know anything about the book of Deuteronomy, you should be aghast, right? Egypt is Israel's nemesis, right? In the Old Testament, the word Egypt means oppressor, right? Israel's whole existence is because God liberated her out of Egypt. And for that very reason, in the book of Deuteronomy, God warns his people never to return to Egypt, not just physically, but culturally, socially, and especially religiously. At one point, in fact, in the Old Testament, even looking back in the direction of Egypt was an offense. Egypt is like porn. Don't go there. Well, that's where that's Solomon's back there. That's where he goes. I'm sure he thought it was diplomatic best practice, right? That's what his wife represents, right? But God has a different approach. And Deuteronomy says, I want you to rely on me for your political well-being and security, right? And that reliance on God is a ban on being united to Egypt. Well, Solomon scandalously ignores this. Do you see? Now, the marriage event in chapter 3 to the Egyptian princess is a forecast for future problems. Look with me now at chapter 11, verse 1 and 4, at the end of Solomon's life. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. He also loved Moabite women and Ammonite women and Edomite women and Sidonian women and Hittite women from all the nations, which the Lord God said, don't enter into marriage with the people from those nations. But Solomon clung to them. He clung to them, right? He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart from God. You don't have to be a specialist in Hebrew literature to understand the, the message here. 
It seems Solomon's not just a lover, he's, he's also an American, all things big. A thousand women. More treacherously, these wives bring their own gods into Israel and into his palace. And as you know, when you start to love someone, and Solomon loved these women, you start to love the things they love. That's how it works here. Look at the end again, verse 2, Solomon clung to his wives in love. That's very strong language. The result is that the king has become polytheistic. He's not really worshiping God. He's worshiping anything and everything. It's managed multiculturalism, polytheism. Look at verse 5 and 7 from chapter 11. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the goddess of the Ammonites, and then he built a high place for Chemosh, the god, the abomination, that's how it's put in the Bible, of Moab, and for Molech, the god of the Ammonites. Solomon's offense goes well beyond anything that David did, religiously at least, right? He doesn't just permit worship of false gods. He facilitates it. He builds shrines, and then he bows down. Now, there's something we need to appreciate here. God views his relationship with the people of Israel like a marriage. That's the big image in the Old Testament for how God relates to his people. It's like a marriage, and God does not like open marriages, and God does not, not like polygamy. doesn't make for a happy house. But that's what Solomon's doing here, and it creates a lot of problems. Oh, yes, this creek is going to rise. Yes, it is. Folks, the king, the king of Israel, is unraveling everything that Israel is about. See, back in Exodus, God unlocked the door to Israel's prison. They were slaves in Egypt, right? They couldn't worship God there. Well, God liberated them so they could worship him. That's how the story goes. Well, Solomon is going right back into the cell now, and he's leading the people with him. This is a tragedy worthy of Shakespeare. Listen up now. In all of this, what Solomon is doing is stripping Israel of the one who makes her different and better. The only, God is the only source for that. By relativizing God, the king is undermining Israel's calling. He's undermining Israel's capacity to be a light in a dark world. He's unplugging the lamp from the wall. That's what's going on here. He's ruining Israel's potential to, to be a different alternative in a brutal, harsh, inhumane world. Oh, yeah, something is rotten in the land of Israel. Do you smell it? The problem of gold and horses. We're going to dip now into chapters 9 and 10. What we see here is the familiar occupational hazards of kingship, then and now, they're kicking in. In chapter 9, this is what we read. Hiram, king of Tyre, neighboring king, supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, as much as he desired. Chapter 10 lays it out a bit further. Look at verse 14 and 21. Now the weight of gold that, that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents. Silver was worthless in this time. There's so much gold, right? I mean, is, are we reading about Solomon or King Midas here? Seems he's got the golden touch. So much that silver doesn't even matter, right? But more than this, Solomon doesn't just have the golden touch. He's got dragon fever. Here's my L-O-T-R reference for all you fans, right? <laughs> he's got dragon fever, right? There's greed. Now, some commentators, I was studying this passage last few weeks, some, some commentators suggest that Solomon's colossal piggy bank of gold is a positive thing. They interpret it as a sign of God's approval. Well, that's malarkey, and let me tell you why. First of all, the wealth leads to some serious horse acquisition. Don't kings love to buy horses? 
Look at chapter 10, verse 26 and 28. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 1,200 horsemen, and he stationed them all over the place, and he bought his horses in Egypt. Now, the numbers here are an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 17, right? This is not just an inventory. Let's look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. This is what it says. The king in Israel must not acquire many horses for himself, and he must not cause the people to go back to Egypt in order to acquire the horses. It's not rocket surgery. As we can see, some things have been lost that should not have been forgotten. Second Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> the writers are sending a message loud and clear. Solomon's gone wayward. He's building a Calvary, right? And a Calvary, what's that? That's the form of self-reliance. And Israel's supposed to be about God-reliance. Oh, but there's more. Doesn't gold just have a proven capacity to turn decent people into ogres? Yes, it does. Let's look at chapters 4 and 5. There's some wealth there mentioned. This is from Solomon's earlier years. And we'll notice that in chapters 4 and 5, all the wealth of Solomon at that time is described as wealth in terms of food. Food. And it's wealth that is shared. That's what we read in 4 and 5. Well, the wealth here is not food. It's gold, and it's not shared. You know what he, did, what he, does, he does do with it? He indulges, and he amasses. Look at uh, verses 16, 17, and 21. This is what he did with the gold. He made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. That's a lot of gold. 300 smaller shields of beaten gold, three minas of gold went into each of those. He made a great ivory throne, and guess what he put on top of it? Gold, right? There was nothing like this ever in the world, in the kingdom, right? All of, everything he drank out of was gold, right? The vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, everything was gold. Yeah. When the money is spent, it's spent in a decadent way, ostentatious. This man had gold everything, probably had gold and toilet paper. Now, aside from indulgence, there's also amassing. Earlier in chapter 9, this is what we read. We read that Solomon has been building cities of storage. That's a familiar phrase if you know the Old Testament. These little cities of storage were places for the king to store his wealth, right? The language that is used there comes right out of Exodus chapter 1. It's the report about the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. They were doing some building. They were building cities of storage for Pharaoh, which is precisely the point. Solomon may have been given a lot of riches, but, but he's using them in accordance with God's purposes and God's wisdom. Is, he, is his wisdom translating into good governance and service to his people? Methinks not. What's happening is this. Solomon's acting like a pharaoh. He's multiplying golden weapons. He's setting up a pyramid economy, and all the wealth is flowing up to the top. And just like the pharaohs in old Egypt, he's starting to act like he's God. He's starting to think that the gifts are his. Don't we all do that sometimes? And in all of this, Solomon is shattering God's dream for his people and God's vision for a better world. Is this registering? Something's rotten in the land of Israel, and there's a real stench. This is a rank and somber situation. The, the happy glory of chapter 3 and 4 is under a dark cloud. How'd that happen? How did it happen? How do we explain it? That's what we're going to do now. The book of Kings gives us an answer, and the answer is of tremendous spiritual relevance to us, to you and me. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? Well, God's giving an essential answer today. He's giving us a big tip. By looking at how Solomon fell into decline, we can learn something very important about our walk with God. In the New Testament, Jesus tells a parable about seeds. We preached on this in May, you may remember, Mark's Gospel. 
Some seeds are scattered, right? One of those seeds fell among thorns. It grew a bit, but the thorns grew up even more, and they choked it out. When Jesus explains that little parable, this is what he says. He said the thorns in that, for that seed, they represent those who receive the Lord, who receive his word, but then the cares of the world and the deceits of riches and the desire for other things more than God, they, they choke God out. I can't help but wonder if Jesus had Solomon in mind when he told that parable. If Solomon's demise brings us one huge reminder about our spirituality, this is it. Our walk with the Lord is not and cannot be sustained solely by occasional profound experiences of God. Just look at Solomon. How did he end up so wrecked, right? Because he didn't have profound experiences of God? No. The text will not permit that answer, right? Over the course of his life, this guy had some profound, intimate experiences of God. We talked about those last week. But in the end, it's not enough. In fact, he's worse off. This is a very important lesson, especially for we millennials, right? We're experienced people. We place a premium on experience, right? In the realm of religion and spirituality, it means that experiences of God, largely emotional, can become the chief and sometimes exclusive basis for having an authentic spirituality or for being true disciples. That's how we're wired to operate as millennials, right? We want to jump from mountaintop to mountaintop. But that's a faulty spiritual orientation, right? Not because experiencing God is trivial. That's not true at all, right? We need to experience God, and He wants that. The problem is with what gets sidelined or overlooked as a result of that. See, the great gain of experiencing God is that we know He exists. We know He loves us. We need that, right? But Jesus doesn't just want us to acknowledge that He exists, right? Listen carefully. He wants us to live consistently in the reality of His existence. He wants us to live consistently in the reality of his existence. And that's what Solomon didn't do. He did not persevere, but we can. We can. How? By doing what Solomon didn't. You want to be rooted in God? You want to walk with God consistently, with intimacy, concretely? You've got to root out some stuff in your life. Me too. Experiencing the Spirit connects us with God, but rooting out deepens that connection. It puts flesh on the bones. According to the Bible, there's a serious competition inside each of us. It's a conflict between the way of God and our own way, the way of self-interest, the way of our own preference, the way of individual autonomy, right? And that conflict that's inside of each of us plays out in a thousand little battles, right? And those battles, that's where the victories are won. Friends, Solomon didn't end up wrecked at the end of his life because of the decisions he made at the end of his life. That's not how it works. He got there because of a thousand little decisions that he didn't make in the prior decades. That's what 1 Kings wants to show us. Solomon's chickens have come home to roost, as they say in South Carolina. The devastation of chapter 11 didn't start there. No, no, no. It started in chapter 3. In chapter 4, in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7, in chapter 8, it started when Solomon did not refuse to marry an Egyptian princess who brought her gods into his house. It started when he made a lot of money and decided to build vaults to hoard it instead of sieves to scatter it. It started when he didn't refuse to locate the nation's security in an army. It started when he refused to say no to his inner inclinations that did not have their origin with God. Let me put it this way. 
We have to deal with our lusts, any type of lust, as often as they captivate our imagination. We have to renounce our tendency towards self-reliance in whatever form it takes, as often as it feels so darn natural. We have to repent of our fondness of money and material acquisition as often as we get a tinge of excitement about having more of it, like I did when I scratched a lottery ticket last week. If we don't check this stuff, the little monsters are going to become big monsters. As is often the case, when things like this get ignored, they have a tendency to later be indulged. You tracking with me here? All this stuff had to be rooted out if Solomon was going to be deeply rooted in God, but it wasn't. Here's how the cards fall. In the Bible, faith is never divorced from this type of activity, right? It goes hand in hand with it. See, faith isn't just about a brainish acknowledgement of God. Even the demons do that, says Jesus. Walking with God is about taking steps to root out things in our life that hinder us from loving the Lord with heart, soul, mind, and strength and from doing life his way. That's exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, he says, it's not enough just to avoid adultery. You have to deal with the lusts that are parked in your heart and your imagination, right? And if you don't do this, Jesus says, you're going to end up in a situation where you're much better at getting married than staying married. If these spores aren't crushed, they will spawn. We've got to root out in order to get more rooted. Our love for God, just like Solomon's, can be fragile and fleeting. We got their rival suitors, rival suitors for our hearts. We've got to starve those things or they will strangle our union with God. That's what it means to walk with God. Do you know this? Are we doing this? This is the difference between those who have faith and those who keep faith. Let me say this. This is one of the most important things you will ever hear me say as your pastor. But guess what? To the degree that we do this, that we take this journey, there's a marvelous surprise, right? You're going to find that you actually end up meeting God in ways that surpass what you can imagine right now. You're going to come to know God very, very well. That's exactly what Jesus means in John's gospel when he says this, those who do the truth will come into the light. You won't have to jump from experience to experience of God because God will be in your everything. Onwards. If we stop here, we'll miss the greater glory. How God responds to the rot in Israel. Oh, we just reflected on how we walk with God. So now in closing, we're going to look at how God walks with us. This is probably the most important overarching message of the entire book of First and Second Kings. If you've been snoozing, now's a good time to rejoin. Just give, a, give your neighbor a little nudge if you hear a little, okay? Let's do a little flashback. Scattered throughout the first 10 chapters of Kings, we encounter what I like to call a recurring opinion. It's an opinion about how God relates to his people, right? This opinion is packaged as an if-then statement. If-then, right? So let me summarize it like this. If the king keeps faithfulness, if the king keeps God's rules, then the king will have a successor. Then the house of David will always have someone on the throne. If-then. You see how it works? That's the opinion of David when he talks to Solomon in chapter 3. It's on Solomon's lips as well in chapter 3 and chapter 8, right? Everyone thinks that way, if then, if then. Hmm, 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 hmm. That's pretty, the logic there is pretty straightforward, right? But we now know enough to be a little bit suspicious, don't we? To put it bluntly, 
David and Solomon, both, they both have some basic orientation towards God, but their adherence to God's ways, their righteousness is relative at best. It's relative at best. We've seen that very clearly, right? Poor things, they only have a partial grasp of how God works. They think God works like them, like us. They think God operates in a contractual manner, if, then. That's an, that was a common attitude in the ancient world, I think. I've, I've been watching Marco Polo on Netflix recently. That's a great show, right? And in one of the episodes of the second season, Genghis Khan is talking to his young son who's going to be the ruler one day. And this is what he says. He says, son, if you live by the laws of the blue sky and you know, follow the ways of the gods, then one day you'll sit on the throne and you'll always have successors. That's how David and Solomon think. If, then. That's how we think. That's how most of us think, right? Well, 1 Kings is shattering that outlook. The real God is not that way. He drives a wedge between if, then. That's not his fundamental way of relating to us. Now, of course, the fulfillment of God's promises involves our participation and our obedience, right? But in the end, it's not ultimately contingent upon that. That's the big, shocking surprise, glorious surprise of First and Second Kings, right? Now, from one angle, what's being said here isn't actually new in the context of the Old Testament. Go back to 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7, for example, and God speaks to David. And what does he say? He says, David... Even if you and your lineage fail to follow my ways, I will still establish your throne forever. That's called an unconditional promise, and we all long to hear those, don't we? Did David and Solomon forget about that? I don't think so. I don't think it's a memory problem. I think it's really a heart problem. It's a problem I've had. The truth about how God walks with us has to be continually applied to our hearts especially in a world where love and loyalty are all too often conditional. See, based on our common human experience, we come to think that God acts like us, that He loves like us, conditionally, but He doesn't. Thank goodness. That's what gets me out of bed on the hard mornings. Now, Scripture lays this out. This isn't something that's just declared by God. It's also demonstrated by God. It's proven right here in 1 Kings the very existence, the fact of Solomon's reign demonstrates it. The fact that he has a son, we'll read about him next week, who continues to reign. That demonstrates it, right? These guys are sitting on the throne of Israel because of God's promise, not their performance. Welcome to the strange new world of the Bible. It's a world where people don't get what they deserve and where many people receive much more than they ever had a right to. Do you get it? That's grace. In this time, the Israelites are learning how God walks with them. They're learning more about that, and so are we right now. God's way of walking hadn't changed. Now, this doesn't mean that God's going to give a thumbs up to everything that's disordered and misoriented in the world, right? God's grace does not exclude discipline. Preston's going to talk to us about that next week. God will, then and now, Strip things away from us that, that distort our true identity. He will do that, right? In the Bible, that's called God's wrath. Martin Luther says that God's wrath is nothing more than God's love burning white hot. In other words, God can do tough love. He can do tough love. But tough love is just the outer working of God's passion for us, right? The core of God's love is what I like to call holy love. Holy love, right? Marilyn Robinson, the writer of Gilead, Pulitzer Prize winner, once wrote this, she said, love is holy because like grace, the worthiness of its object is never really what matters. 
Love is holy because the worthiness of his object is never really what matters. She's talking about how God loves us. That's holy love, right? And God knows about holy love better than anyone else in the universe, better than our best friends, better than the best spouses, even our families. How does holy love play out, right? How does, how does it love an object like us that's not worthy of love all the time, right? I'll tell you how it plays out. It plays out through forgiveness, and forgiveness involves sacrifice. When you forgive, you've got to absorb the fallout of an offense, right? Someone stamps on your toe, right? You may forgive them, but you still have to deal with a bruised toe and a broken digit. That's how it works, right? You've got to absorb that. That's how it works with God, too. This becomes painfully but beautifully clear with the king that concludes the line of David 28 generations later. And that's the king who's still with us. He's fulfilling God's promise to David. You'll always have a, a, a king in your line. Well, that king's still with us, so that promise is still valid, right? That's why the church exists. Right? This king is called Jesus Christ. And he became the brokenness and the fallout and the endured pain of all of our stamping on God and God's ways. In his death, God is absorbing the compounded offenses and assaults of David's faithlessness and of Solomon's and of all their successors and of all of Israel at large and of everybody in this room and in this city and in the whole wide world. That's what makes God's holy love possible. That's the sacrificial forgiveness that ensures that it's not just a sentiment. Friends, this is what keeps us in God's embrace, even though we all carry a stench. I know that's not flattering, but it's beautiful. The fragrance of Christ will cover any ugly thing. This is who we are. We are people to whom God is ever loving, even when it costs him everything. Do you know this is who you are? That's the big question today. Do you know that? Have you been seized by the power of this great affection? Are we relating to each other in light of this reality? Are we self-aware? That's how God walks with us. Nobody else is like that. And the only people that ever come close to it are people who have been touched by Jesus Christ. That can be you. So come on into the world's greatest love story or come further in.